Ruth will be our study today, and it is a fascinating book for a number of reasons. Just a, a couple of really interesting and unique things about Ruth that are just on the surface of interest before we get into the lesson proper. Ruth is one of only two books in the Bible that's named uh, after a woman, where a female is the uh, heroine or the, the, the hero of the story, we might say. Uh, another unique thing about the book of Ruth is that, as a rule, we meet a lot of major characters in the Bible, right? We, we, we deal with primarily the, the events and circumstances of, say, Moses' life in the first five books of the Bible, uh, or, or that of Abraham, or, or King David, etc., and so forth, or the prophets like Jeremiah or Isaiah. And these are the big figures that we think of. But Ruth is unique in that this is, um, on the surface, just a picture of, of everyday uh, normal life in Old Covenant Israel. Ruth is the only book in the Bible where the whole book is centered around the lives of ordinary one final interesting thing about the book of Ruth is that not only does it center on a woman, and not only is uh, she a, a, a simple woman with nothing special about her, she's not like Esther who's a queen, but she's a foreigner. She's not of the tribes of Israel. She's not one of God's people in that sense. And this is significant because it shows that even early on in the scriptures, God was not concerned exclusively with ethnically Jewish people. They were, yes, his primary mission field, for lack of a better term, but remember the promise that God made to Abraham in Genesis 12, 3. In you, or through your seed, shall what? Shall all the families of the earth be blessed. The plan from the beginning, and it did not change, was to bring people from every tribe and tongue into the covenant community of the people of God. Before there's a king, before we get to the New Testament, God is drawing those outside of the covenant community into the covenant community by faith. Ruth is not the first like this. Remember, we talked a lot when we did the book of Joshua about Rahab. And she was also not by birth, but brought in through faith into the covenant community, made uh, a beneficiary of the promises of God. Ruth is also unique in that it's part of a collection of books that we really started uh, last week with the book of Judges. Um, <coughs> generally speaking, people divide the Old Testament this way. Uh, Genesis to Deuteronomy are the books of Moses. Joshua up through Esther are the historical books. And then you have Job through... Song of Songs is the poetic books, and then Isaiah forward is the prophets, and then on into the New Testament. And that's true and, and appropriate as far as it goes. But within that historical section of Joshua through Esther, there is a, a canon of books within that, which is, is kind of a micro scale, uh, that were written uh, by the, the prophet Samuel. And it runs from Judges up through the first half of Samuel. Uh, generally speaking, judges up through the first half of Samuel are thought to have been written by the great prophet Samuel. A reference is made to Samuel writing Chronicles, writing the history, not the book of Chronicles, but chronicling the history of 
the Jewish people, and it's made in the scripture. In 1 Chronicles 29 and verse 29, we read, uh, when I get there, 1 Chronicles 29, 29, so this is the end of the book. It says, Now the acts of King David from first to last are written in the chronicles of Samuel the seer, and in the chronicles of Nathan the prophet, and in the chronicles, chronicles of Gad the seer. And, and, and we know from our study of the chronicles with Dr. Phillips in the evening services as he's able to get to it, that the chronicler of, of these books, First and Second Chronicles, is depending largely on material in the other historical books, especially First Samuel through Second Kings. And so we're saying here that, that <clears throat> the chronicler makes reference to historical books that Samuel wrote, and generally speaking, uh, tradition tells us, and there's no reason to suspect it's any different than this, that Samuel wrote Judges through the first half of 1 Samuel. And that's significant because he's writing to make a point. He's writing to uh, illustrate something. Remember when we studied uh, the, the Pentateuch, we said that Moses had some goals in mind because he's writing to an original reading audience. Yes, he's writing to us today. Yes, he's chronicling events that happened before he wrote them, especially in Genesis. But he's writing them to answer questions of people at a particular time. Namely, who is this Lord of whom we're following in the wilderness? Who are we and where are we going? Those were the things that Moses was answering in the Pentateuch, among other things. Samuel is writing at a particular point in time. Now they are in the promised land and there's this great question, <clears throat> who should be leading us? Right? So remember the refrain, especially in the book of Judges. Would somebody please read for us? Judges 17 and verse 6. Uh, Miss Duncan. In those days there was no king in Israel, but every man did that which was right in his own eyes. 18.1. Somebody else. Bueller. Yes, Miss Berenger. In those days there was no king in Israel, and in those days the tribe of the people of Dan was seeking for itself an inheritance to dwell in. For until then, no inheritance among the tribes of Israel had fallen to them. All right, 19.1, just the first part. Mr. <laughs> Mr. Schwanabelt. In those days there was no king in Israel. A certain Levite was sojourning. In the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, who took it on, who took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem and Judah, and uh, twenty-one twenty-five. Somebody else. Mister Johnson. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. All right. So, what's the refrain going on? There's no king. Everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. And that's really the, the point that we hammered on a lot throughout the book of Judges last week. And so Samuel is, is writing this history um, in some sense as a polemic, as, 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 a, as a way to answer this question. So in Judges, he's, he's laying out the problem. And then in Ruth and <clears throat> in 1 Samuel, he's going to answer the problem. Now, I, I said last week that the end of the book of Judges is very dark. It's very um, tragic what happened. Uh, we won't go into all the details, but in the city of Gibeah, 
which is in the land of the tribe of Benjamin, a, a woman was, was raped to death. That's what happens. And Gibeah tries to cover up the people of that city. They, and Benjamin tries to protect their people. This results in Israel being plunged into a civil war. And so we're left with, there was no king, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And there's infighting and injustice over these things. And the people of Israel actually almost wipe out Benjamin completely. And then they remember, well, though they were wrong here, they are still promised an inheritance. And so they, they work out a plan to preserve the tribe. Nonetheless, uh, the, the point is abundantly clear that, that Benjamin and that tribe are just as Jacob had predicted they would be at the end of Genesis 49, where he says, remember the Genesis 49, Jacob, the, the father of all the, of all the tribes, makes pronounces of, of blessings and prophecies over what they will be like. And he says, Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. That's what we see here. So, so what might you think about the answer to the question, who should lead us based on this picture of Benjamin and that, them as a tribe? Where should the leader not come from? Benjamin. <laughs> who is the king as Saul is dying? Excuse me, I just gave it away. Who's the king as Samuel is dying? Saul. Saul. What tribe is Saul from? Benjamin. He's, 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 he's making a point here. Things are going poorly. We need a king. Now, I promise we'll get to Ruth in a moment. But uh, it's important that you understand what, how this book functions. Ruth begins, actually we'll get to it right now, in Bethlehem, which is in Judah which is where the king is eventually supposed to come from per Genesis 49 and verse 9. So at the, at the end of Samuel's life, David has been anointed king, but Saul is currently acting as king and is, you know, trying to kill him. And so what these books are, are designed to do is to, 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 to make the theological historical case that David is the rightful king. And Ruth serves an important function uh, for explaining where this king came from and, and the humble beginnings of his people. And it also gives us a beautiful picture of what he will be like in Boaz. Uh, and with that said, here is behind me the structural outline to the book, and we'll get started. There's the prologue, which is where we will spend most of our time, because I, I, I'm making the assumption that, that most of you basically know the story of Ruth and basically know the beats that it hits. But as you understand the prologue and how Samuel is setting it up, you can glean more from it as you do your own reading. So we'll spend most of our time here in the prologue. But Act 1 gives us the predicament of, of Naomi and her family. Act 2 provides hope, which is pretty much all of Chapter 2. Act 3 gives us the complication, so there's hope, but now there's tension. And then Act 4 gives us the redemption, and Act 4 will be, or not Act 4, rather the epilogue, which will be the end of Chapter 4. We'll wrap things up for us. So, real quickly, I'll read for us Ruth chapter 1, 1 to 5. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Mahalon and Shihalon. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. 
But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. She was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives, the name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. And they lived there about ten years. And both Mahalon and Chilon died, so that the woman was left without her sons and her husband. So the events that are about to unfold are taking place at a particular point of redemptive history. That is during, what, the time of the judges. This is happening uh, contemporaneously at the same time as the events that we looked at last week at the end of the book of Judges. Uh, is this a good time or a bad time for the people of God? Bad time. And what happens? There's a famine in the land. Famines are often used by the scriptures as an evidence of God's judgment on the wickedness of his people. And there's a bit of irony because in the middle of this famine that we're told about, we then meet a man from Bethlehem. Now I'm about to do a lot of stuff uh, from the original Hebrew. You can These are what these words mean, but to understand kind of some of the irony about what's going on here. There's a famine in Bethlehem. Bethlehem means house of bread. This is supposed to be where the food is, and there is a famine. Now, normally I try not to make a big deal out of the original language, but the, these, 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 these meanings behind the words etymologically will help us to understand uh, what's going on here. So Bethlehem is house of bread. So in the house of bread, there's no food. And they leave Judah to go to Moab which is historically known as an enemy of the land. And it's not like they just went there to get food and then came back. Verse 2 tells us they went there and they stayed there. And what's further irony is the name of this man, Elimelech. Elimelech, El meaning God, Melech meaning king. His name means my God is king. My God is king, and yet I am going to go away from the land that my God, who can provide, gave me to find sustenance someplace else. He doesn't trust God to provide what is needed in the house of bread, so he goes to a pagan land. And he takes with him his wife, Naomi, whose name means lovely or pleasant or delightful. Um, other synonyms include Bethany. And Elimelech and Naomi take with them their two sons, Mahalon and Shilon. One's name means to fall sick, and the other one's name means to come to an end. So it's not much of a mystery what's going to happen to these two guys. Elimelech dies. Their Hebrew sons marry pagan women, and both of those sons die as well. So that's the background information to set up the story that's about to unfold over the next couple of chapters. Naomi, stranded in a pagan land with pagan daughters-in-law, and suddenly she has lost her home, her sons, and her husband. She is empty. She's going to say that later in chapter 1. And, and so in some sense, as we, as we walk through the story, it's, 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 Ruth is, is the main character, and, and she's... She's the heroine of the story, but it's about Naomi going from emptiness to fullness. And there's a turn in verse 6. Can somebody please read verse 6 for me? Mr. Johnson. Then she arose with her daughters in law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. 
So she hears there's food back home. She goes home. And, and I think we, we kind of know what happens here, right? She, she, she tells her daughters-in-law to what? Stay. Stay. I'm going to go back home. I don't have any more sons for y'all to marry. There's, I don't have any way to provide for y'all. Y'all stay here. I'm going to go home. Orpah agrees, but Ruth won't do it. Ruth refuses. She pleads with Naomi in verse 16. This is very significant, but Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And then she quotes, paraphrases maybe is better, the covenant promise that God made to Abraham. And your people be my people. And your God be my God. She's trusting in and banking on the promises of God. She believes the promises of God. And so she will return to Bethlehem with her mother-in-law. And I won't go into the the whole covenant theology lecture right now, except to point out that this is the same promise that you and I are trusting in. This is the, what O. Palmer Robertson calls the Emmanuel principle. God with us. God with his people. We will be his people and he will be our God. This is the promise that, that uh, Pastor Anderson quoted at the end of his sermon this morning and that you guys who weren't there for 8.30 will hear at 11. Revelation 21.3 Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man and God will be with them as their God and they will be his people. This is the same promise that Ruth is espousing right here. Because that's the way it has always worked. Those who are outside of the covenant come in through faith. And those who would be beneficiaries of the covenant promises in, in, the, in the ultimate sense are made so through faith. Anyway, Ruth and Naomi return together to Bethlehem. And Naomi sees her old acquaintances and she renames herself Mara. Why? Verse 21. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. And that's the end of Act 1. Naomi is is no longer delightful, but bitter. She's bitter because she left full and has returned empty. But she's got Ruth. Ruth will will refill her her stalls, as it were. As a side note, um, in effect, what the narrator is telling us is that the pleasant one, Naomi, has returned from Moab bitter. And this is a side note, but it's, it's worth saying to you guys because you're young and you need to hear this. That is always what, the, 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 what sin will promise you. It will promise you if you abandon God and you abandon trusting his provision, you abandon all these things, you will find what you need outside of God and his people and his promises. Just like the prodigal son. That, that again, if you're going to hear, if you weren't in 830, you'll hear at 11, who, who thought that he could get all of the, the, the blessings out of this world and yet finds himself in the muck and the mire and he returns empty. This is the way sin will always, always, always leave you. So with that said, we'll move on into Act 2. Uh, chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. 
Now, just one thing to note uh, as, you, as you read chapter 2 later on your own. Uh, it begins with us meeting Boaz, who's, who's one of Elimelech's relatives. It tells us that a couple of times, but Ruth and Naomi don't know that. The narrator is giving you that detail. They don't know that yet. They're going to find it out later in this very same chapter. So it's not like they, they found this guy and, and they're already plotting a scheme to, to get from him. Rather, uh, they, 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 they see a field and, and they're actually trusting God's promises and the provision that God set up in the Old Testament. Uh, you can read about this later. Leviticus 19.9, Deuteronomy 24.19 all give uh, prescriptions under the Old Covenant law that that, that people who had fields were to leave the edges of the field for, for people who had nothing for others to take. And, and Ruth says, we're going to live off of that. We're going to live off of how God provides for his people. And so we see Naomi uh, starting to be replenished as she's believing in God's promises. And, and, and Ruth goes to the field and she meets Boaz. And she comes back with all this grain, all this food. And in verse 19 we read, And her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today? Where did you go that you brought back all of this? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she, that's Ruth, told her mother-in-law, Mara, Naomi, with whom she had worked and said, the man's name was Boaz. Now, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, and one of our redeemers. So, so we have here the hope of redemption. She, she's, 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 she's again remembering that God's law makes provisions whereby if, if a man dies having no children, his brother or a, a kinsman, a relative, can redeem all that was to be his inheritance, marry his wife and raise up a son in behalf of his brother who has died. That's the hope. That's the redemption that they're looking for. And so now they begin to, to, uh, to, to pursue this, this path. Uh, would somebody please read uh, chapter 3, verses 1 to 5? Uh, Miss Duncan. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said unto her, My daughter, shall I not seek rest for thee, and that it may be well with thee? And now is not Boaz for our kindred with whose maidens thou waste? Be he winnoweth barley tonight in the threshing floor. Wash thyself therefore, and anoint thee, and put the remnant upon thee, and get thee down to the floor, but make not thyself known unto the man, until he has done eating and drinking. And it shall be when he lieth down, that thou shalt mark the place where he shall lie, and thou shalt go in, and uncover his feet, and lay thee down. And he will tell thee what thou shalt do. And she said unto her, All that thou sayest unto me I will do. Thank you. So, in other words, Boaz is having a great feast tonight. Ruth, what I want you to do is dress nice, go to the feast, and you are to uncover his feet, and he will tell you what you are to do. Now, a lot of commentators have, I would say, inappropriately taken this passage and this plan of Naomi as some kind of seductive, risque thing. But it's not. See, Boaz promised, or Boaz rather, pronounced a blessing on Ruth back in chapter 2, verse 12. 
He said, the Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come for refuge. So, so Boaz has pronounced this blessing. You, you have come to the Lord for refuge. You are, you are protected under his wings. May he bless you. And so now Ruth is coming to him and saying, would you mind being the answer to your own prayer? Would you be the one in whom I can take refuge? Uh, does somebody have an ESV? Uh, you'll see there's a footnote on verse 9. I'll just read it. Um, I, and I'm just doing this to say that the, the original language does matter, but you don't necessarily need to know it to get the important details. They're given to you in the footnotes. So consult these things. Verse 9, Ruth said, uh, he says to Ruth, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And the footnote points out there's a, there's a literary connection with verse 12 of chapter 2. So she's saying, be the redeemer that, that you prayed for me to have. And what's more is the word that's translated wings can also mean corners of the garment. And so when she's laying at his feet, she's laying at what? The corners of his garment. She's laying under, she's laying by, by, by the symbol by which uh, he has pronounced this blessing over here. This is uh, a picture of, of, of the Lord covering his people. Uh, Ezekiel 16 and verse 8 would, would, would use similar language to describe the, a marriage covenant. Uh, and uh, John Yeo says, the metaphorical spreading of the garment over the woman is to cover her nakedness, not to expose it or to exploit it. So this is, there's nothing sexual going on here. It's a promise to cover and redeem. So Boaz, we find out in chapter 3, is not only willing, but he is glad to be this kinsman redeemer for her. Except there's one catch. Somebody closer in the line. There's somebody who has a, a, a more um, a credible, maybe, right? Who has, uh, this sounds really rude, but first dibs on, on the redemption here. Um, and so that's, that's the situation that we find in chapter 3. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true, I am a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. And so Boaz is going to go and meet with this man the next morning. And, and basically get him to bow out. Um, he, he offers him the redemption. He says, I'll do it. And then he reminds him. You know that everything you stand to gain for this actually isn't going to be yours. Because the whole deal with, with the, 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 the Leverite uh, marriage, uh, which is what they're appealing to, is that when a man dies, which happened to Ruth's husband and happened to Elimelech, his brother, his kinsman, raises up offspring in the name of the one who died. Meaning the one who does this is sacrificially investing his life to serve the legacy of another. And the guy says, well, I, <laughs> I don't have any interest in sacrificial giving here. Uh, I thought this was a deal to get extra inheritance for myself. And he backs out. Interestingly, in a book that has uh, so much focus on names and what they mean, this guy is not named at all. He is uh, called by many commentators, Mr. No Name. 
uh, because he passes on his duty. And so Boaz and Ruth, they get married and they live happily ever after. Now, why is this story in the Bible? Why is this whole thing here? It's a great picture of redemption, absolutely. It's a picture of what the Lord Jesus does for us when he redeems us from death, when we have left empty and yet are restored to fullness. That's great. But there's also another thing going on here, and, and I trust many of you know this. This is the beginnings of the Davidic line. Ruth chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. And they named him Obed. Obed was the father of Jesse, the father of David. And then he gives the genealogy of David again, going back a little bit further, all the way back to Perez and uh, Tamar. Um, and this is a, a really important point to take home, and, and I'll leave you all with this, especially in the giving of the second genealogy, going back further. The Lord is able to take fallen people, make fallen decisions that are immoral and against his will. We all remember what happens with Judah and Tamar, which is where he starts this genealogy. We remember how this story starts with Elimelech and Naomi leaving the promised land and going somewhere else to find their blessings. And God, not condoning the evil, not approving of the wickedness and sin, will take the deeds of sinful people and turn them to redemption for his own people, through which he's going to bring David and David's greater son, our Lord Jesus. And, and, and both of these uh, these, these tragic stories actually make it into Jesus' genealogy in Matthew chapter 1. And, and the point is then that, um, as you'll see in the prodigal son, no one uh, is too far gone for God to redeem. And those who come to him and trust his promises, he will restore and refill and renew no matter what it is that you have done. Let's pray. God in heaven, we thank you for the book of Ruth and the picture of redemption that it provides. I pray now that as we depart and prepare for worship, that you would bless us and prepare us, grow us in the knowledge of your promises and our faith in them. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.